0: Well, it is a privilege to be here and share in the Sunday morning worship with you. And um, I believe I came here for a singular purpose, and that is to share with you some good news. Are you in the mood for some good news? Would you like to hear some good news? Here's some good news, Freshwater. Jesus has not left the building. He's not going anywhere. He's not leaving. In fact, he was very specific about his promise to you, Freshwater. His promise is he will never leave you, never forsake you. He's in you. He's working through you, and he will be with you, his promises, until the end of the age. In fact, as I was walking here this morning before first service uh, from the parking lot, I walked past the engraving on the exterior wall here of uh, Freshwater's facility. And engraved in the wall is the Bible reference, Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles and that Jesus Christ is her chief cornerstone. So fresh water. Jesus is still on the throne he's not nervous about what's going to happen next in Freshwater's story. In fact, I believe Jesus has very good gifts in mind for you. Now, the Brooks family, they were a good gift to Freshwater. And, and James reminds us in chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights. And with him, there is no variation. There is no shadow of turning. So hear me, Freshwater, the same father that prompted the Brooks family by his spirit to say yes to Freshwater 19 years ago has a plan for Freshwater for the future and he is a God who gives good gifts to his children. And if we could pause for a minute and and step into selfless mode, the gift that the Brooks family was to Freshwater, God in the sovereignty by his Spirit is sending to be a gift to another people we don't know who, we don't know where, but another people who will enjoy the benefits of God's gift to them through that family, and he's not done with us yet. So with the fact that it's all hail King Jesus, and that he's in our midst, and that he is establishing his church, I, I want to take this occasion to focus on Jesus and his mission for his church. And transition is a good opportunity to kind of push back from the table a little bit and all that's right in front of you and uh, wondering about the future and dealing with the everyday issues of life. Transition is a good time to push back from that and take in the bigger picture of who the church is and why she is here. And I, I want to begin that journey in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 1, 8. This is what really could be described as a prophecy. It's a declaration Jesus is making to his church she was born on Pentecost. She was born on this day of Pentecost that would be when the Holy Spirit would come just, just a short time after Jesus gives these words. And so he's not only birthing the church, but he's giving her her marching orders. And, and his statement was, you shall be my witnesses. Not like, hey, you ought to consider being representatives of me. No, 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 he said, you will be. And then you have the concentric circles in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he was really specific that they would receive power from on high For this mission. And they're not to go until they receive power on high and sure enough, the Holy Spirit comes to them and they birth the church with the proclamation. And Peter starts with the sermon and 3,000 were added to their number that day and it was a beautiful start. But sometimes the church gets it wrong. And sometimes the church gets stalled. And the church is inclined in her default behavior to stay in a holy huddle. And so for eight years, the church stayed contained in Jerusalem. Though they had been given very specific orders to be a light not only in Jerusalem, but it's an and and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now, if they were going to keep this course, we would be in trouble because from geographically speaking, from the place of Jerusalem, I think Wadsworth, Ohio would qualify as the ends of the earth. Are you following me? And yet for eight years, they did not obey. I mean, good things were happening, but they were not mobilized. They were not decentralized. They were not distributed. And so it took the occasion of persecution for the church to get activated in her mission. It wasn't until God allowed there to be blood on the walls from the death of Stephen that the church would be activated to do what Jesus told her to do. And very often you will find that God will use struggle, trial to get the attention of his people. From Acts 1.8 to Acts 8.1, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The gap between those passages chronologically is eight years Chapter seven is when Stephen is stoned. And when you look at verse one of chapter eight, I want you to notice Luke, the author of Acts, he's very intentional with his language. He says in verse one that the church was persecuted and then began to scatter through Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. In fact, she finally started getting activated to her mission. Now jump to verse 4. Verse 4 introduces the activity of Philip. Now remember, sometimes churches get it wrong. Sometimes they struggle. And earlier in the book of Acts, there was some conflict. There were two kind of flavors of Jews in Jerusalem's church. There were the Hebraic Jews and there were the Hellenistic Jews. And the Hellenistic culture Jews were noticing that their widows were being overlooked in the benevolent work of the church. And so they raised that issue with the apostles and leaders. And in response to that, they chose a path of leadership development and they began to identify deacons who were not clergy... They were not full-time paid hired guns. They were regular folks who were filled with God's spirit and had a specific function in the body. Philip, referenced in 8.4, is not an apostle. He is a deacon. He's a peer of Stephen. And it says that Philip went through Samaria, and as he went, he preached the gospel. In fact, the church began to be distributed. Later in that chapter, Philip would encounter an Ethiopian. This Ethiopian is pulled over on the side of the path The chariot is paused. He's reading from the Old Testament. It's a messianic passage about Jesus. The Ethiopian doesn't understand it. Philip explains it to him. And now the gospel begins to transform a heart of one from Africa with influence who would take the message of the gospel and the message of his transformed life to Africa. And the gospel would begin to spread. Now... Jump to Acts chapter 19. And let me walk you through a little bit of how Acts progresses. The primary featured city in the book of Acts as it begins is Jerusalem. The primary featured person, as Luke records the book of Acts, is Peter. But as the church begins to fulfill her mission and spread, the, the focal point city shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Israel to Syria. And, and in chapter 13, you see that the church is established in Antioch, Syria, and they are, le- they are leaving such an impact that it's in Antioch that the world starts calling this movement Little Christs. In fact, the the origin of the word Christian comes from Acts chapter 13's recognition of the health of a church in the city of Antioch. And Antioch sends out the next featured person in the book of Acts, Paul. And so the book shifts from an emphasis on Peter to an emphasis on Paul. The book shifts from Jerusalem spreading out to Antioch. But as you move to chapter 19, now the focal city is the city of Ephesus. And it will loom largest throughout the rest of the narrative. And when you come to Acts chapter 19, it is 25 years after Acts 1.8. After the initial mission of the church was declared to that church by Jesus, 25 years have passed. Now hear me. Ephesus is 1,100 miles from Jerusalem. Ephesus would be the city in what is today Turkey. And in the ancient world at the time of Acts 19... What we call today Turkey was divided into provinces, and one of those provinces was called the province of Asia. Don't think continent of Asia. Think a province called Asia. The biggest city in that province was Ephesus, and the population of that province was five million people. Why am I telling you all this? Because 25 years after Jesus gave the church her mission and 1,100 miles away, a group of 5 million people have Acts 19.10 described them. Look at verse 10. Paul was doing discipleship in the city of Ephesus. This took place over a period of two years until, here's what the text says, all the Jews and Gentiles in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You've got the gospel saturation of five million people, 1100 miles away in just 25 years. Now I want you to think how staggering this is. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have the printing press. They couldn't distribute literature. They didn't even have multiple copies of the scriptures. They didn't have the combustible engine. They didn't have air travel. They didn't harness the power of electricity. Yet that primitive civilization was so empowered by the Spirit of God and in mission in such an obedient way that five million people heard the word of the Lord. I've got news for you, Wadsworth. There's 24,000 people in your city. And every man, woman, and child in the city of Wadsworth needs a repeated opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. And just in case, Freshwater's up for that task. There's 180,000 people living in Medina County. And just in case, the church is up for that task. There's 11 plus million people in the state of Ohio. There's 15 million people in Mali, West Africa. We've got to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. And what I want to share with you in these next few minutes that I have is how she did it, how the church did it. How did they reach 25 million in the process? How did they reach 5 million in the process of 25 years, countries away? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as your people, I ask that you would give us by your spirit that which we need to hear for this day, that we might declare all hail King Jesus, and that we might live and function with him as our cornerstone, and that all that we do and all that we say would be in submission to him and in cooperation with his spirit and in the fulfillment of his mission for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to break it down into seven, and I'll spend more time on these seven aspects. Uh, I'll spend more time on some than others, but I'm just going to simply count to seven, and the first number is one. How many churches are in Wadsworth? How many churches are in Medina County? How many churches are in Ohio? I've got news for you. You belong to a family that's bigger than Freshwater. In fact, just in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, there's 80-plus congregations that have very similar DNA to you, in Eastern Ohio and all of West Virginia. And that's kind of the scope I'm responsible for. It's 7.3 million people in that boundary. And there are many congregations outside of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, particularly in this city, I want you to think, with some clear theology of the church. Theology of the church is called ecclesiology. And like Martin Luther did some correction of the theology of salvation in the 1500s on October 31st, I think God is trying to awaken the church to some clarity on what the church means. So I got news for you. There's one church in Wadsworth. One. And that church transcends denomination and congregation and worship style and programming. There's many congregations in our city, but there's one church. In fact, take a look at how the church is addressed in the New Testament. Paul's letters will say, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Thessalonica, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Colossae. You see, the church is one movement of the people of God Called to own the lostness of a designated geography, a city. Jesus prayed a high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Jesus had a prayer. Now, listen, if there's a prayer request that's probably gonna get answered, don't you think Jesus' prayer has a really good chance of getting answered? Well, listen, he prayed a pretty tall order. He cried out to his Father and he said, Father, I pray that they who believe through the message of the disciples in Jerusalem, that they who believe, that includes you and me, would be one as the Father and I are one. Trinitarian unity. That's his prayer for us, that we would be unified in such a way that we would reflect the unity of the Godhead. And then he gives the outcome of the, if this prayer is answered, he says this. He says it twice in John 17. Write it down and look at it later. He says, then the world will know you sent me. Think about this, church. Think about this. We carry a message of reconciliation. If we can't get along with each other, how credible is that message to a lost, divided, dying world? And so in our unity, as the body of Christ, we invite the spirit to fall in blessing and power. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that falls down on Aaron's beard onto the hem of his robe, and it proclaims this command, life ever after. You see, unity invites the power of the Spirit to bring evangelistic effectiveness. The world will know by the love we have, one for another. So I got news for you. There's one church. There's many congregations, but there's one church, and you belong to her. And God is using you to write this chapter in the history of the church for the city of Wadsworth. And that's a mission that has eternal implications. Two. There's two expectations for this church. Two expectations. In fact, if you were to do a list of all of the laws and commands in all the Old Testament, there's approximately 613 of them. You could probably say those 613 are summarized in 10, the 10 commandments. But Jesus summarizes all of those 10 commandments into two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And then in the upper room with his disciples as he's serving them, he distills all the commandments down into one commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. There's one commandment expectation for the church. It's to love as Jesus loved. And there's one mission for that church. It is the great mission. It is The commissioning of the church to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Listen to me, people of freshwater. The only reason you who have called on Jesus as savior are not in heaven right now is because God has a singular purpose that you would represent him. You have a relationship with God and he's called you to represent him to those who do not have a relationship with him so that they in turn will represent him. And that's your one job. That's why you are on planet earth. And it's great to have jobs and it's great to raise families and it's great to have children and it's great to have grandchildren or um, to have great friendships or to have great community. But your one job is to be in relationship with God and represent him to those not yet in relationship. Two expectations. Two. That's it. But boy, they're big. There's... Uh, 330 million in the U.S., there's 8 plus billion on planet Earth, and, and I already said there's about 24,000 in Wadsworth. We got our work cut out for us. So there's a threefold vision to meet these two expectations. Here's the threefold vision that I think just rises from the New Testament. First of all, we are an Acts 1-8 family. You belong to the family of all who call upon Jesus. Not just in one denomination, but in the body of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, one Spirit, one body, and you belong to it. You are a family, the family of God. You've got an Acts 1-8 mission. We covered that. How do we fulfill this? I mean, what are we called to do? Not just be in a holy huddle like the apostles did for eight years. We're called to collaborate with all of God's people to advance the kingdom. Not to build a kingdom, buildings, bucks, and bodies, but to build the kingdom, souls transformed by the spirit of the living God, set on fire by his spirit to shine their light wherever they live, work, and play. How do we do this? If we're an Acts 1-8 family, that's Christ-centered, and we're supposed to work with all the body of Christ to advance his kingdom, how do we do it? There's one plan, plan A. There is no plan B. It's discipleship through the mobilizing and multiplying of transformed disciples. All right, let's get into number four. Number four is the one I want to dive deeply in. We've got four values that we can observe from the passage of the New Testament process that if we embody these values, if these values are our operating system, the way we function, it will change the destiny of the nation. The first value is mobilization. Not merely a collecting community, but a mobilized community. Let me explain it this way. Some of us in the room may think, we got up this morning and we went to the church to hear from the preacher or the pastor. Or or to put it in old school terms, some people think they got up this morning, they came to the temple to hear from the priest. I got news for you. This morning when you woke up, You still had bed, head, you know, right? You hadn't brushed your teeth yet. And you looked in the mirror. You were the church. You are the church. You didn't drive here to come to church. Church is not an event. It's not a building. It's not a program. It's not a place. It's a people set on fire for God. Peter would word it this way. He's writing to the persecuted church in his epistle. We've identified as 1 Peter. And he says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. He's declared every follower of Jesus a priest of the kingdom of God. You're the intermediary. You're the go-between. You're the ambassador between lost people and Jesus. And Jesus transforms you in such a way that you are the representative of Jesus to those that are far from God. Jesus points to the temple. Remember, the temple in Jerusalem was God's idea, the Father's idea, sacred place. The epicenter of God's activity on earth was Israel, the epicenter of Israel was Jerusalem. The epicenter of Jerusalem was the temple. The epicenter of the temple was the Holy of Holies. You couldn't even go in there without being struck dead. It was the manifestation of the locality of God's activity. And Jesus points to it and says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will remain upon another. And I can see the disciples going, hey, Jesus, keep it down. Like we can't be like tearing down God's temple. And he's showing them a new covenant. He's showing them a new testament. He's showing them a new way, a new work God is doing. God was going to tear down the temple. In fact, it collapsed in 70 AD. Why? Because it was his plan to put the temple on the road. You are the temple. You are the priests. And the church represents God in your homeowners association and on your pickleball courts and in your cubicle. It's wherever you live, work, and play. That's where the church is. It's a mobilized community. It's not just a Sunday-centric, pastor-centric, program-centric event that pandemics can shut down. See, no, it's a people on fire for God and she can't be shut down. In fact, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not stand against the advancement of the church and you are that church. And every disciple of Jesus in this city is your brother and sister in Christ. Not competition, but family. Family on mission together. So the broken way of thinking... That much of the church in the Western Hemisphere has thought about is to view the church as an event rather than seeing her as a people. With a missionary to Thailand in 2008, he said, hey, we're going to see one of the congregations that God is planting, and uh, we're going to participate in a worship service that that congregation is holding. And it was inside a prison. For those of you who travel outside the United States, uh, you receive a paper when you get your passport that says that the Constitution does not follow you outside of the U.S. And now they're telling me I'm going into a prison in Thailand. And I'm thinking, I hope I can get out of the prison in Thailand. Uh, When we gathered with about eight or ten people, we were having a worship event. There was singing. I didn't recognize the songs because they were in Thai expression and Thai culture. There wasn't one preacher preaching. Several of them had their Bible open and were digging into the word together. And uh, we didn't collect an offering. There were no paid staff (laughs) because these were prisoners. And the young lady translating for me said, Dave, you know what's the best part? And I could just sense God's spirit and see the resurrected life in the eyes of these prisoners who, though they do not look free, are far more free than many on the outside of those walls. And I said, Stacy, tell me the best part. She goes, the best part is when the guards get so frustrated with this movement that they can't contain that they identify someone in the group that seems to have the most influence and they transfer them to another prison and now we got a church plant in another prison. Why? Because the DNA of what God wants to do and the presence of who God is goes with all her people. Every one of you. Not only are we to be a mobilized movement, not merely a collecting, not merely a gathering, but an advancing, distributed movement but we're to be a transformed people. Not merely consumers who come to consume products. Sometimes I think churches, congregations, struggle with this idea of being a consumer. Which programs does this congregation offer that best suits my family? How good was that message? Did I get fed? And all of it starts to come from an orientation of consuming. And the reality is, we're not to be consumers. We're to be Disciples who make disciples in a transformed, distributed way. And so the activity of the gathering should be the equipping of the people for the distribution of the people wherever God has placed them in a place of influence. The problem is, sometimes we export water and we tell everyone it's wine. You remember the miracle at Cana. Jesus transformed water into wine. And I'm afraid that in these polarized days, just a glance at social media, I don't often see the fruit of God's presence. I see grumpy, rotten fruit. And there's not the whimsical presence of transformation. We can't keep sending out water and pretending it's transformed by the Savior when it still looks like it always looked and has no distinction from those around it. The mission of the church is to make transformed disciples whose lives are different. His name was Bart DeRosso. Bart was uh, part of the church I was in when I was a pastor in Florida. Uh, As recent as just over a year ago, I pastored churches in Florida for the last 25 years. Bart was lost. Bart's wife, Debbie, prayed for Bart for 28 years of their marriage. At the end of 28 years, Bart, who was a very successful businessman, had accumulated all kinds of toys uh, for himself, you know, like the kind of toys that you haul with the trailer, like big toys, right? Like fun, materialistic indulgences. And Jesus got a hold of his heart. You know, there's no U-Hauls following hearses. Have you noticed that? Like you can't take it with you when you go. And so the accumulation of what this world has to offer paled in comparison to the eternal gifts Jesus was offering Bart. And Bart surrendered his heart to Jesus and became a disciple. And his life was radically changed. And Debbie was overwhelmed with joy that her husband is now a disciple of Jesus. But Debbie's father had been an atheist her whole life. And now that her husband was on fire for the Lord, her own sons were seeing the transformation in their dad and they were activating their faith and all of them were growing in Jesus, but everyone was worried about grandpa. And Bart told me that one family dinner, when grandma and grandpa were visiting, everyone's around the dinner table and Bart said, I was just quiet the whole meal because my sons were arguing with their grandpa about the kingdom. And they were trying to convince him through persuasive words that God is real and God created the world and we didn't evolve. and, and, And their grandpa was very intelligent and very informed. And the argument kept escalating. And Debbie is feeling her anxiety rising. And it's not going in a good direction. And finally, Bart gets everyone's attention. And he says, excuse me, I have a question for Poppy. Poppy, if Jesus isn't real, then who changed me? You see, the power of his apologetic was the transformation of his life. And this father-in-law who knew the no good, dirty son-in-law he had for 28 years is not the son-in-law he's looking at now. Transformation. Third, We've got to collaborate with other believers. We've got to collaborate with other congregations. I already gave you the John 17 analogy. Uh, when I was pastoring in Florida, I went to the restaurant in New Smyrna Beach where I was a pastor, and it's called McKenna's, and I had built a friendship with Mike McKenna, the owner, and he uh, wasn't following Jesus, and I tried to be a light and build credibility with him and a witness, but on this one occasion, I'm having lunch with Luke McKinney, who's the pastor of First Baptist New Smyrna Beach, Southern Baptist Convention, I was pastoring Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, but why were we meeting for lunch? We were meeting to talk about collaborating together as churches along with eight other churches in our city to see that there was a good news club in all five public elementary schools in our community and sharing resources and sharing ideas and sharing volunteers. We were collaborating to make a difference in our community. And the lunch finished and Luke left and I'm settling up the bill and Mike comes over to me and he goes, hey Dave, what are you doing here with the competition? And I said, Mike, you know, I don't go to Bennigan's across the street because I feel like I'm cheating on you if I eat over there, right? Like it feels like the competition, but Luke's not my competition. The Baptist church isn't my competition. We're partners. We're working together. It's not McDonald's versus Wendy's versus Chick-fil-A. We know who wins that one, right? It's, It's the body of Christ collaborating together to own the lostness together of a city. And when we do this, When we collaborate, God blesses with the multiplication of more disciples and more leaders and more congregations and more gospel saturation movements. It's how in the course of 25 years that under-resourced church gospel saturation happened among 5 million people 1,100 miles from where they started. And Wadsworth's a whole lot farther away than Ephesus. And the gospel has come to you. And he's called you to take the gospel to others. There's five ways we want to see culture shift. I'm not going to go into the details of this, but I want to give you this word about culture. Culture is what a group of people view as normal. It's what a group of people come to expect. Like the culture of some people's houses right? You go to their home and they take off their shoes. It's just an expectation they have. It's just a behavior that's normal for them. If you go over to their house enough, you figure out, okay, I probably should take my shoes off. But at someone else's house, it might not be their culture. Listen, when the culture of a congregation shifts to see transformation as something that's normal, people taking responsibility for their own spiritual formation becomes normal, People having a view to identify three people close to them but far from God becomes normal. Entering into wherever they live, work, and play with the goal of representing Jesus well just becomes normal. In fact, after first service, someone from Freshwater's family came to me and said, Dave, the kind of things you're talking about, they've Much of what you've said has become normal at Freshwater. Like, it's so encouraging to see people investing in other people's lives and see lives being transformed. And I'm saying, hallelujah, let it spread. So there's some specific areas that you should see culture shift. But lastly, uh, two more, six. There's six Outcomes in a person's life that shows they're becoming more like a disciple. When you observe that they're seeking God's face, that they're intimate with him on a regular basis, that they're engaged in the spiritual disciplines, that they are in pursuit of God's kingdom invading their heart, if over the course of a year someone at Freshwater is more engaged with their personal walk with the Lord than they were a year ago, you may have disciple-making on your hands. And as someone engages in intimacy with God, like Moses spending time with God, his face would glow. The glowing face of the New Testament people is the fruit of the spirit, that people that you encounter see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, that when they bump into you, that's what splashes out on them. And if it's happening to a greater degree this year than last year, you may be on the path of becoming a disciple. And if you're helping someone walk this path so that in their life, they look more like Jesus and are doing more of what Jesus did today than they were a year ago, you may have a disciple on your hand. If someone is actively sharing the work of God's grace in their lives, and when people have conversation with them, they know God's doing something in that person's life. When that becomes normal, you may be having disciple making on your hands. If someone in their personal mission understands their spiritual gifts and knows where they plug in into the life of the church, you may have disciples on your hands. If people understand that they're stewards of their time, their talent, their treasure, that their home and their apartment and their car, it all belongs to God and it's all to be used to advance his kingdom, you got a disciple on your hand. When you got people taking responsibility for lost people in their world and Representing Jesus to that person. You've got a disciple on your hand. The last thing are seven practices we will measure and assess for churches. We will offer assessment to Freshwater in this time of transition when these practices are evident and a part of the footprint of the congregation. You've got kingdom advancement happening. Listen to me, Freshwater. You didn't get up this morning to come to church. Freshwater You are the church. Now go be the church.